welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning, my friends. Good morning, Awaken. I hope that you are well. And I'd love for you to close your eyes and imagine me, your pastor, sitting in a completely empty church, preaching to empty pews, because that is exactly what I'm doing. Uh, I want to start this morning just by giving uh, a few words about community life, some things that you would have heard about had you been in worship together with us at Awaken, and then we'll move to the teaching for the morning. Uh, So first, uh, a couple of things that you should know as it relates to our life together. There is an artist retreat coming, and today happens to be the last day that you can register for that. This is an artist retreat that Melody is leading, and it is taking place at a cabin called Crooked Creek up in Hinkley, Minnesota. Uh, the cost for it is $40 to $60, depending on how many people come and how much food needs to be purchased. Uh, the dates for it are April 25th and 26th. You can find more information about that on the website, as well as a place for registration. So please consider that if you are interested in getting out of town for a couple of days. Uh, Secondly, there is the third and final learning lab for the season. Uh, This spring, starting on Wednesday nights in April and in May at 6.30 p.m., my good friend, Dr. Christine Osgood, who teaches up at Bethel Seminary and is a Uh, regular attender of Awaken. She sits right over here on my right and your left with her husband and family. Uh, Christine is just an absolutely fantastic and gifted communicator and educator, and she is going to be teaching uh, a learning lab, which is essentially a deep dive into a particular topic. So far, we've covered race and what it means to be white. Uh, We have in the fall, and then in the winter, we looked at uh, healthy human sexuality, And then in the spring, we're going to be looking at holistic soul care. So what does it mean to be a human and to be living well and thriving in all of the different areas of our life from physical, mental, or physical, cognitive, relational, emotional, spiritual, and our our vocation or our meaning? Um, And so Christine is going to be sort of boiling that content down into a eight-week learning lab. So again, 6.30 on Wednesday nights in April and in May, and you can sign up for that online at awakenwest7th.com. Last but not least, today would have been an informational meeting after the second hour about baptisms for Easter. So we'd love to do baptisms on Easter. Traditionally in the history of the church, that is a common practice where New believers would come and be baptized on Easter morning as a celebration. And so we were having an informational meeting about that. If you are interested at all in being baptized on Easter, I want to let you know that that's happening and also that you can email me, micah at awakenwest7th.com and we can chat about what that will mean and will look like. So that is that. Now, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 14. That's where we're going to be. Today is the third Sunday of Lent. If you were not aware, that is where we are in the church calendar. It begins with Advent in December and moves into Epiphany after Christmas and then to Lent beginning on Ash Wednesday. And so today is the third Sunday of Lent. And I hope and I pray that your Lenten journey is bringing you joy and a deepness and a richness. Uh, Mine is proving to be a real challenge, if I'm being totally honest with you. Uh, I have given up alcohol for Lent, 
And with all that's happening in the world, with the coronavirus and things being shut down and canceled, it would be a very convenient time to queue up Netflix and a margarita or a Jungle Bird, a couple of my favorite cocktails. Uh, So I am really in tune with and in touch with my longings and cravings and desires, that is for sure. I bought Coors non-alcoholic beer the other day, uh, which I don't know if I've ever done. Um, But in all seriousness... Um, (laughs) I I hope and pray that your Lenten journey, whatever it is and whatever it includes, is bearing life and fruit, that it's drawing you into deeper places with God. So this morning, we will continue in our series called Metamorphosis. Uh, Previously, in the Metamorphosis series, we have looked at two stages before today, that being the stage of the egg and the caterpillar And so we're following these two journeys of the caterpillar on the one hand and then the journey of the Israelites and Moses on the other. So in week one, we looked at the egg and the birth of Moses. We saw that Moses was declared as good by his mother and placed in an ark, this teva, this place of of holding and uh, this womb, as it were, that was cared for and preserved We see that uh, Moses and the seeds that are present in Moses for for life and goodness are vulnerable but independent on the love and benevolence of another, which is often the case when we find ourselves in this place in the spiritual journey. We are vulnerable and we're often uh, dependent upon the goodness and the grace and the gift and love of other people. Uh, In the second stage, we saw the caterpillar and Moses on a mission. Uh, Moses hears from God uh, he, 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 he has clarity in his mission, and there's fruit from his action and effort. In the caterpillar's life, there's nothing but eating, eating and eating. There's a, a drive and a passion and a hunger in the hungry caterpillar. And there's clarity as to what it's supposed to be doing and where it's supposed to be going. And it's growing, and there's good things happening. And so I invited you to receive that last week, to not be afraid of that or to be shy about it, to not... Um, deny it or sabotage it or skirt around it, but to receive it as what, for what it is, which is good and joy and life. This morning, we turn towards the chrysalis in this chamber of transformation, and we look at this moment of transition when something is about to change. It is the penultimate moment before transformation and metamorphosis. Um, for those of you who have gone through the process of birthing a baby or like me, have read or studied about that process, you may have a love-hate relationship with the word transition. Uh, Transition in the birth experience is the peak of suffering and pain in the labor process. It's the place where a lot of women say, I can't do this, or make it stop, or you did this to me. Um, But it's also the place, if you imagine the roller coaster going up and up and up, it's all uphill, and then transition is the point at which the car begins to crest the top of the hill and things are about to get real. Um, Transition in the spiritual journey is the moment, the season when something shifts in our souls, when there's a sense of unease and unsettledness, a premonition that change is coming, when what had been good and was working starts to shift, when you sense you're being invited in a new direction to mature and grow and change in certain ways. And so if you have your Bibles, I want, you to, I, would, I want to invite you to follow along in Exodus chapter 14. And if you can, and you're in a place where it's uh, an option for you, I'd invite you to stand uh, as we read the scripture together. Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. 
They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and lost their services. And so he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all their other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped near the sea by Pi-hahiroth, opposite Baal-Siphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. And Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to go, to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Pray with me. God, this morning as we gather, we do so differently because of all that's going on in the world. And so we take a moment to pray for those who are in leadership regardless of our political affiliation or thoughts about how well anyone is doing or not well anyone is doing, we lift up those who are in leadership and those who have the power and the position to make change and cause change. And so we ask that you, by your spirit, would lead and guide, that you would intervene, that your hand of mercy and of grace and of healing would come and rest on those who are affected by this God, we thank you for the church and pray that you would call us, invite us in the coming days and weeks into the world, God, for service and for love, for grace, for hope and mercy, for justice, for healing. Use our hands and our feet, our voices and our bodies, God, to bring about your healing and your love into the world, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. You may be seated if you're not already seated. (laughs) So this morning, the caterpillar and the people of God in transition. What is happening in the caterpillar during this process, this period, this transition moment, this moment when it begins to stop eating so voraciously and starts looking for a place to enter 
the chrysalis. There are three things that are important for you to know from a biological standpoint. Uh, ectosone and juvenile hormones and what's, some, what's called imaginal discs. Now, juvenile hormones are present in the caterpillar when it is born, uh, as well as ectosone is present in the caterpillar. And essentially, the juvenile hormones hold back the tide of all the things that are about to happen because of the presence of ectosone hormones in the body of the caterpillar. Uh, so long as the juvenile hormones are up and the levels are up, the caterpillar keeps eating and growing. Now, ectosone is actually needed for the molting of the skin while the caterpillar is growing and eating, uh, and then it's, it's needed later again during metamorphosis when that takes place. But for now, the juvenile hormone levels are up and the caterpillar eats and eats and eats, and there are within it these things called imaginal discs. They are essentially the... the uh, the shadows or the DNA shadows, the presence of what will be the body parts of the adult butterfly. And so as the juvenile hormone levels are up, the ectosone is kept at bay. The ectosone actually uh, catalyzes the process of transformation. And so as long as the levels of the juvenile hormones are up, that doesn't happen. But as the time draws near for the caterpillar to stop eating and start moving towards the chrysalis, you guessed it, the juvenile hormone levels go down, the level of ectosone stays present and high, and as the juvenile hormone levels go down, it begins to move the caterpillar. Typically it moves 15 to 20 feet or so from where it has spent the first 9 to 14 days of its life. And the decreased levels of juvenile hormones trigger the caterpillar to start the process of transformation. It is this transitional moment. Now, basically the opposite of what's true for the human. If you imagine during puberty, uh, for us, what triggers puberty is increased levels of testosterone and estrogen, the pituitary gland sending out more hormones into the body of the human. But for the caterpillar, it's the opposite. The juvenile hormones essentially stave off and hold back the ectosone. And so as those decrease, the ectosone takes over in the transition is underway. It's a fascinating process. Well, what about the Israelites in this journey out of Egypt and into the wilderness? This transitional moment between one place and another. Remember where we are in the story, if you will. They, the Israelites, have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Generations of Hebrews have lived and died in this place. They were fed, they were housed, they, in some ways they had security because they had water and an empire fighting for its well-being and place in the world, and they were a part of that in some ways. And in Exodus 14, where, we're, where, where we've just read, it's the first moment outside of their previous life and before they enter the next season, which will last for 40 years in the wilderness, this desert, this chrysalis of transformation before they enter the promised land as a people group. Now, I want to explore three ideas in this passage as it relates to this experience of transition. They are as follows. Number one, where are they and what does that mean? Uh, number two, what do they see in this moment? And then number three, what is the tension that exists in this transitional season? So first, where are they and what is being said by the descriptions of where they are? The writer of the story seems to make quite clear the physical locations of the Israelites. We're not just told one location, but we're told that, that about the whereabouts of the Hebrews. But multiple reference points in the story, multiple times, almost like triangulation works with satellites. We know exactly where the Israelites are because of these different 
places that have been mentioned. But here's a question for you. 3,000 years ago, in the desert of the ancient Egyptian empire, what can we be pretty sure is not present out there along the paths that the ancients would have traveled? Yeah, you guessed it. Street signs. Friends, what's not out there are signs that say Pihahiroth, population 3,459, 14 miles this way, and Baal Safan, population 2,546, three miles that way. There weren't signs out there telling people, like, this is where they are, and this is how far it is there, and and to get to that place. Um, But what we should note in Hebrew is that words have meaning. So when you say Pihahiroth, it's not just a location. It actually means something. In, in English, when I say Blaine or Egan, it, it doesn't mean anything other than like a physical location as it relates to other physical locations. But if I were to say Minnesota or Minitanka or Minihaha, all Dakota words, they have meaning. They mean cloudy or sky-tinted water, Minnesota. They mean great water, Minnetonka, or waterfall or rapid water, Minnehaha. See, in in Dakota, like in Hebrew, when you say the name of a place, it has a meaning. So when the writer of Exodus tells us where the Hebrews are location-wise, they're actually telling us more than just where they are location-wise. Where are the Hebrews in the story of transformation? What has just been said? Well, we're told that they are to camp at Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal Zephon. So what have we just been told? First, Migdal is a fortified city on the Egyptian border. It is also an elevated position or a tower. So if you imagine the far eastern side of the Egyptian empire on a a cliff or a bluff, uh, an elevated position is a fortified city called Migdal. Pihahiroth is two words that come together that could be translated the mouth of freedom. So camp at Pihahiroth, the mouth of freedom, between Migdal and the sea and Baal Zaphon. Baal Zaphon, also two words and can be translated the hidden god of the north. So if you can picture this in your mind's eye, they have on their left Mitzrayim, um, far left, Mitzrayim, also known as Egypt. That's Hebrew for Egypt, and, and that, that can be translated entrenchment or a narrow place. So on their left, they have the narrow place, Mitzrayim. They're camped at the mouth of freedom, and on their right is the impassable sea, and just to their left is the fortified and elevated city of Migdal and Baal Safan, the hidden god of the north. They have left one place on their far left, Egypt, And they are not yet in the next place. They're camped at the mouth of freedom between the impassable sea on the right and the hidden God of the north on the left with the narrow place people closing in on them. So we've been told a lot about where they are. What does it mean to camp at the mouth of freedom? Where on your right is impossibility and on your left is impending death. Which brings me to the second noticing. What do they see? What do the Israelites see in this moment? If you remember in week one, we talked about the first usage of the word tov, this Hebrew word tov, which is found in Genesis chapter one. How what is good and what's 
called good is what God has embedded in creation when creation itself, or you and I, and you and I, bring it forth with the seeds of future life in it. That's what's called good. We also talked about this idea of what it means to see as God sees. How God saw the light and in the midst of the darkness and drew it out, how God saw what was potential and energy and life and God drew it out and make, made space for it. And this invitation of can we see as God sees. And in verse 10, the writer tells us, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, hold on to that phrase, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And so they were very afraid. The children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, you have taken us out here to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. There's a similar story to this in Genesis chapter 15 where Moses and Lot are about to part ways. And the text says, Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plains of Egypt well watered and flourishing like the garden of delight, the garden of Eden. So Lot lifts his eyes and likens the garden of Eden to Egypt. In the next verse we see, the text says, the Lord caused Moses to, or excuse me, Abraham to lift his eyes And he sees something quite different in another direction. In our story, the Israelites lift up their eyes and what do they see? But Pharaoh, Pharaoh's army coming after them. They rant and rail on Moses for bringing them out there and they say, we're better off where we were in Egypt, which is a trope that they will continue to repeat throughout the story of the Exodus. We were better where we were, where we had food and security and water. We were slaves, yes, but we were better off there. So again, What do they see? Through whose eyes are they seeing through? Whose perspective are they seeing from? And Moses responds to the Israelites in verses 13 and 14. Three times he mentions the sight of something else. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall see no more. The Lord will fight for you. You shall only be still. See, Moses invites them to see differently, to see a different reality, a reality that doesn't pine for the past and what they had in Egypt, but rather a reality that includes moving towards what Yahweh is inviting them to, a reality that takes a certain kind of faith and trust to see despite what one might be feeling in the moment. Can you see as God sees what is behind you and what is before you? This is not just a question for the ancient Israelites. Can you see as God sees what is behind you? As good as it may have been and what is before you? What may be uncertain and unknown? Which leads me to one last noticing in this story about the life of faith and about transformation. And it's this tension that exists between yes and, or it's the tension of yes and. In this case, transition for the Israelites is about the tension between surrender and volition, between stillness and movement. In verse 14, they're told to surrender and see that God would fight for them, that they should only be, keep still and be quiet. 
You see, sometimes when we're unsure about something, as you might imagine the Israelites are in this moment, when we find ourselves there, many of us, we just do more. In an effort to quell the anxiety or occupy our minds and our bodies, we just do something. Even if it's not all that helpful or constructive, we just can't handle the anxiety and the unknowing, and so we ramp up the movement. Moses reminds the people in the midst of this transition from one place to, an, to the next, they are to remain still and to be quiet. See, here's the tension. In verse 14, he says, you only need to be still and, the Lord, and watch what the Lord will do. And then in the next verse, it appears that Moses is crying out to the Lord and it says, God tells Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell them to move. <laughs> so in one verse... Verse 14, Moses tells the people, you only need to be still. And then in the next verse, verse 15, God tells Moses, why are you talking to me? Why are you crying out to me? Tell him to move. Now, in a moment of weakness, I'm imagining somebody in the Hebrew camp saying, well, for crying out loud, which one is it? Like, how are we supposed to get it right if we don't, is it stand still and do nothing? Is it be still or is it move? Like, we want clear marching orders, don't we? We want very clear instructions. If we follow them, then we get this certain result, right? Like, if I do this, then I'll get this result. And tell me what to do, and I'll do it, especially the ones and the fives on the Enneagram. Dutiful, conflict avoiders. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. If I do this, then I get that. Okay, easy. But you can't tell me to be still in one moment and then move in the next moment. Like, which is it? And despite what we desire, deep in our bones which is clarity and clear instructions. Those who've been doing this life of faith for any length of time know that faith and the spiritual journey just doesn't end up working like that all the time. Both stillness and quiet and non-anxious presence and action, movement, volition on our part are necessary. While our souls are to be still and quiet and free from anxiety, we have to keep moving, keep leaning in, keep pressing into the heart of God and the leading of the Spirit. Even the Israelites, in their journeying, the desert was full of resting and being still and then setting up camp and staying put and then taking down camp and moving and following the pillar of cloud and fire. It was camp, stay here, rest, be still, and then get up, move back and forth, back and forth. See, this life of faith, and certainly this stage of, in the process of transformation, when we feel like something new might be coming, something might be ending, requires both stillness and non-anxious energy in our souls and the continued movement and following of our bodies and lives towards the divine. It's yes and. It's both stillness, quiet, and movement, pressing in, leaning in, following leaning after the leading of the Spirit. So as we close, let me offer a temptation in this stage of the journey that I see and then our question to consider for this part of the process. So we've seen that in the story of Exodus, where they are and what is being said about the descriptions of where they are means a whole lot. They're camped at the mouth of freedom with the impassable sea on one side and Baal Zephon, the hidden god of the north, and the narrow place on the other. And so what does it mean to see as God sees? To, lift, to, ha- to, to allow God to lift our eyes and see as God sees? 
and to be a non-anxious presence in this moment of uncertainty and unknown, but also moving and leaning and trusting and following the leading of the Spirit in the same moment. So a temptation in this stage of the journey and then a question to consider. I want to suggest that one of the temptations in this stage of the journey is to cling to comfort and what we know. See, one of the hardest things about life and movement and the spiritual journey is that we love comfort and what we know. For many of us, the comfort that familiarity brings can be paralyzing. It can and often does cause us to get stuck in seasons or patterns or ways of being that have run their course from which we have been invited to move beyond, but we're anesthetized by comfort and the predictability and familiarity of a place or a situation, so much so that we cannot or we will not and do not move. We exchange our verbness, the very thing that we're made for, life and movement and faith, and we exchange it to become nouns where we'd rather have comfort and what is known than what is unknown. We'd rather be nouns and have comfort and known in what is sedentary and solid than what is unknown and moving. This is Mary, by the way, in John chapter 21, when Jesus, she sees Mary for the first time after the resurrection, and she goes to embrace him, and Jesus says this bizarre thing to her. He says, Mary, actually, he says, woman, do not hold on to me, which seems a bit cruel, unless, of course, Mary is trying to hold on to what she had. And Jesus is like, no, we're, we've, we've transitioned here. There is a movement beyond what we had, and you can't have that back. So the temptation is to cling to what we know, to cling to comfort, which brings me to a question. Will you go back, or will you learn to sing a new song? Will you go back or will you learn to sing a new song? In the story of the Exodus, the Israelites are constantly being questioned or constantly questioning Moses and asking them to take them back. Back where they had food and water and melons and garlic and onions and leeks and all the things that they found secure. They were slaves, yes, but they knew what they had. They knew they were going to be fed. They knew they were going to get water. They were serving the false god of Egypt And serving the Pharaoh, yes, but they had comfort and familiarity. And they kept asking him, bring us back, bring us back, bring us back to what we know. So the question for you and I this morning is in this moment of transition where we've been in a good place and it has proven fruitful for us for a season and we sense a transition happening and a movement in a new direction, will we go back? Will we reach behind us? Will we see what is behind us? through the wrong eyes, the wrong set of lenses? And will we desire comfort and familiarity beyond what is unknown and faith and the journey out in front of us or what we sense God might be inviting us to? Will we go back or can we learn a new song? I remember one of my friends that I studied with with Rabbi Allen, read this poem and it was so beautiful. I just loved it. And she talked about, it was called The House of God. And she spoke of this, this image of 
how she would hear the voice of God in the house of God and it would, it would compel her and woo her and invite her in and she would come down this path, this winding path to the house of God where the door would swing wide open and she would come in into the arms and the embrace and the love and the dance of God in the house of God and it was the place that she met God and related to God and found God and talked to God and cried with God and was loved by God and then she shared in this one study session that this place where she had seen and heard and related to and loved and been loved by God and from God was shifting and changing and how she couldn't go back to the house of God and I remember being devastated. It wasn't wasn't even my house. But I remember thinking, oh, there's got to be a way to keep it. There's got to be a way to get it back. And I watched my friend struggle to let go of the house of God, this place where she met with and heard from and was loved by God and to, to lean forward into with, 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 with peace and non-anxiety but also to lean forward and move towards this new way of being with God. And there was a question there for her. Will you go back? Or can you learn to sing a new song? Pray with me, if you would. In just a moment, I'm going to offer a word of prayer and then a few moments of silence. And then after those moments of silence, I'm going to read to close a meditation by a man named Howard Thurman, African-American pastor and theologian. And he talks about this song, this new song, and invites us to learn how to sing it. So I'm going to offer a word of prayer, and then there'll be a few moments of silence. And then some music will underscore this meditation that I will leave you with. So pray with me. God, this morning as we press into this season and this process in, or this stage in the process of transformation, where we sense a transition, where something has been good and life-giving and maybe fruitful and good for a time, and, and yet we sense a movement, um, an an unsettling uh, below the surface where things begin to move in our souls and we we sense maybe an invitation to something new that's coming, a premonition that you're doing something new in us. And all that that moment brings up in us, the desire to maybe go back or cling to what we've had. And I pray, God, that maybe even as we are camped at the mouth of freedom and we see, we feel the impossibility of the unknown before us, that we would see through your eyes that you are good and that you are with us and that you are leading us by your spirit and that we would, in the end, we would trust that we would be still and live from peace while we lean into and move towards you. So Holy Spirit, in the next few moments of silence, speak to us, lead us, guide us, I pray.
The old song of my spirit has wearied itself out. It has long ago been learned by heart. It repeats itself over and over, bringing no added joy to my days or lift to my spirit. It is a good song, measured to a rhythm to which I am bound by ties of habit and timidity of mind. The words belong to old experiences, which once sprang fresh as water from a mountain crevice fed by melting snows. But my life has passed beyond to other levels where the old song is meaningless. I demand of the old song that it meet the need of present urgencies. Also, I know that the work of the old song, perfect in its place, is not for the new demand. I will sing a new song. As difficult as it is, I must learn the new song that is capable of meeting the new need. I must fashion new words born of all the new growth of my life, of my mind, of my spirit. I must prepare for new melodies that have never been mine before, that all that is within me may lift my voice unto God. How I love the old familiarity of the wearied melody, how I shrink from the harsh discords of the new untried harmonies. Teach me, Father, that I might learn with abandonment and enthusiasm of Jesus, the fresh new accent, the untried melody to meet the need of the untried morrow. Thus I may rejoice with each new day and delight my spirit in each fresh unfolding. I will sing this day a new song unto thee, O God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Grace and peace, my friends.
feels like home. And hanging by the thread of all I know. Will your mercy still follow me here, or am I alone? Here I am, holding out the pieces of all that I. I pray. 